turn in your Bibles to John chapter 1. We'll be in uh, verses 14 through 18 this morning. John chapter 1, 14 through 18. We're going to, uh, I'm going to be looking at a, it's, it's not a topical sermon, but it's a, uh, in this, there will be a topic that is, is actually, it's monumental. It's, it's, um, it's, it's such that the strands of, of this idea of Jesus as a temple and of we as temples is something that, that runs right through both Testaments uh, throughout the whole Bible. And in, in particular within John, what, what we'll see is that, well, hopefully, uh, we'll see is that John actually comes at this from a, in a very subtle way. So he's, it's not always obvious what he's talking about. But if you kind of if you know the story, if you know the story of, of Moses and, and of the children of Israel coming out of Egypt, going to Mount Sinai, and then after Mount Sinai, they're they're given the, the instructions for the tabernacle. But that is kind of the central thing for which they come out of Israel, out of Egypt is to go into the wilderness and worship, right? And so what are how are they going to worship? This this idea of the temple. Tabernacle, this um, this booth that's set up in the or this tent that's that stretched out in the wilderness, with in the middle of the camp, becomes a central focus of of the story. I mean, from Exodus twenty five all the way through the end of Exodus, where finally at the end the glory of the Lord fills the, the tabernacle. This is like almost the whole portion of Exodus, uh, the whole from yeah from twenty five on to uh, 40, 40 something. So major section about the filling of the tabernacle with the glory of God. And then as we read this, um, I think you'll, you'll hear some of these echoes and, um, and then hopefully I'll be able to bring out the, the sense of, of what's happening. What, what John says, the gospel writer, there are going to be two Johns in this, this story. There's going to be the John that's the writer and then John the Baptist. I'll try to clarify which John I'm talking about as we go through. But uh, So John the writer John the writer is um, getting at something here. He's not simply telling us facts that somehow puff up our mind with knowledge. Uh, he's telling us uh, he's telling us how Jesus is kind of the culmination of all of Scripture. How he is, how everything kind of comes to a to a head, if you will, in the Messiah. And he is better than this. He's better than this. He's actually the end of this. The goal of this. He is. He's better than our father Jacob. One greater than fa our father Jacob is here as well. So um, watch for this as we go through. He does it in a, in a myriad of ways, and very subtly. Um, and it's not, not like we'll see, say, in Mark. We look at Mark 1 briefly, uh, just that one, one verse there. And we'll see that Mark is quite overt in the way that he does it, but uh, not so much John. So anyway, let's, uh, let's pray. And we'll jump into this uh, text and see what John is trying to say. Thank you, Father, for uh, this time. We thank you for your word. We pray that uh, your, uh, your word would be clear to us this morning. We do pray that uh, you would help us to be transformed as we, we too, uh, look upon the face of Christ and are changed from one, one level of glory to another. Uh, we just uh, thank you for your goodness. We thank you, Father, for the way you have, uh, have been transforming us and continue to do so. 
uh, we pray that you would uh, continue to do that, that you would bind us together uh, in the unity, uh, the unity with which you, your son and the spirit are, are bound together in unity. We just thank you, Father, for uh, this time. We pray you'd be with us, uh, pour out your spirit upon us. In Jesus' name. John 1, 14 through 18. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as but a unique son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified about him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The unique God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Uh, I'm not going to talk about that, um, the term there, the unique, the unique or the only begotten of God. Uh, there, there are a couple of ways to read that. Uh, I think it means the unique, the unique son, the unique one, and not the only begotten. Uh, the, the words are very close in the Greek, but I'm not going to talk about that. I'm, I'm going to uh, going to look at something. There's many things that we can talk about in this passage, but um, I've been somewhat selective to try to bring out this idea of the temple. But if the reason I say that is because if your Bible says the only begotten, it is your only begotten God who's in the bosom of the Father. That could be correct. Okay, so there are a couple of uh, possibilities on how to read that word. Last week we looked at the way that John was raised up by God to testify about Jesus and about the way that God is actually redeeming all of creation through Jesus, however counterfactual it seems. And the way he is doing this in and through Jesus and his people in modest yet meaningful and genuine ways in our families and in our church families. In verses 6 through 9 in particular, God is doing this through John the Baptist as he begins his ministry. We saw that John, and this time John the Gospel writer, used the same word to describe the way John came onto the scene as he used about the word, the logos, bringing into existence all things. He says, all things became through him. And then he says that John became, indicating that God himself is doing a new creation work. And this starts with the testimony of John the Baptist. And I drew from that, that along with other creational language that we see in John 1, specifically in the beginning, it begins with the words in the beginning, just as Genesis 1 does, which is the creation account. Uh, we said first week, a few weeks ago, that's intentional, right? So it's very intentional that he begins his gospel with the same words, the opening words of Genesis 1-1, which is about creation. So to say what's happening here is new creation. Along, <clears throat> Jesus came into the world to bring about nothing other than new creation. He is beginning what God began a long time ago and intended for the, for the world, for the cosmos, and for people, for humanity, brand new creation. And this new creation encompasses not only people, but it involves the redemption of all that can be redeemed within God's creation. Not in 
this kind of save the world and scratch the people mentality that we often see in our modern world, but in a, in a holistic redemption of everything that can be redeemed, humans and things within the world. And he is bringing all of these to participate. This is a very important aspect of it. And I think this is like what sets it apart as uniquely Christian. What, what John says that God is doing is he's bringing all things to participate in the exaltation of God in Christ so that he might have preeminence in everything. So he's subjecting the world into himself. God was in Christ, reconciling the world to, to himself, not counting their trespasses against us. And he's committed to us, Paul says, this message of reconciliation. And this message of reconciliation is to bring humans into a right relationship with the Lord, but then through that, eventually to transform the whole creation and redo the creation. Practically, we can bring everything within our own domains under his domain and rule for his namesake. We also saw that Paul agrees with this assessment of the ministry of Jesus and what he had, what he was intending to do. Because Jesus, because Paul models his apostolic ministry after that, God was in Christ, he says, reconciling the world to himself. This is huge in its implication. Today, we're going to look at verses 14 through 18, and we'll focus in particular on what has been called by many temple theology, temple theology. Many of us, if, if not all of us, have heard of the idea that Jesus himself is God's temple, and we ourselves are many temples, M-I-N-I, -I, many temples for the dwelling of the spirit, and we'll see how the idea of Jesus as temple is developed more clearly as we go through John's gospel, especially in at the end of this chapter, chapter one, verse 51, and then, uh, it, and then in chapter two, we'll see this comes out very explicitly. Jesus himself comes out and, and says it, or John says this about, about Jesus. Jesus says it kind of cryptically. John's going to come back and reinforce it and say he's talking about his own body. His body, his body is the temple. We have often, though, viewed Jesus as temple in a somewhat disconnected way, disconnected from the temple project that God began with creation in the Old Testament scriptures themselves, and from God's plan from long ago to build a temple not made with hands. So uh, check, out, check out Daniel 2 when you have time and, and look at the way this, this temple not made with hands is kind of the goal of the building of the kingdom of God. And these two things are kind of equated with one another. You also see in Hebrews, building not made with hands. This is the body of Jesus. And then uh, this later eschatological temple that's going to fill the whole earth. So at the risk of neglecting other features of 14 through 18, I want to spend some time looking at what John is telling us about Jesus's entry into the world and how it relates to this temple project that God is building. You'll remember that when we looked at Mark's gospel, at the very beginning of that gospel, Mark quotes a verse from Malachi 3.1 to refer to John the Baptist as the forerunner of the Messiah. My point in jumping to Mark uh, briefly is to say that both John and Mark are doing the same thing, but they're doing it in a different way, much different way, such that sometimes you can't even see what John is doing. It's, it's very subtle. Mark says in his, in his first intro, 
as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, with Isaiah being the head of the prophets. He's actually quoting from Malachi, and he's going to quote from Isaiah. He says, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way. We, and this is all he says from, from Malachi 3.1. He throws in this, this piece of a verse from Malachi 3.1. Then he goes on and quotes another portion of a verse in order to tie those together from Isaiah 40, verse 2. And, and from this, we are to draw some kind of conclusion about, about what, what Mark is going to be doing for the rest of his book and what this means for the ministry of Jesus. We saw that when, when Mark or any of the gospel writers quote scripture, he does so in a kind of a hyperlink type of way. He often quotes or alludes to a portion and expects us to know the rest of the context, the larger context from which he is quoting. So when he quotes from Malachi, he expects us to know the book of Malachi inside and out and to know what's going on there. He expects us to know several things from its context. First, Malachi was a priest among his fellow priests. And secondly, Malachi is talking to an audience of, priests, audience of priests about the promises of God. In particular, he's talking about the promise of God to return to his temple. Now, this is not a big deal for us, but, but listen closely because this, this actually informs a lot of what the gospels say Jesus is actually doing because this was a, it's a monumental promise that God had made uh, when, uh, when he left the temple, or actually before that uh, with Moses, that he would return. And to return to the land meant that he would return to his temple. You will recall, perhaps from the, from the book of Ezekiel, how the exile of Judah, who was the final tribe, uh, the tribe of God's gracious choice, how the exile of Judah began with the spirit of the Lord departing from the temple. Goes up, leaves. What does this do? This departure enabled the surrounding nations to come in and plunder both the land and the, and the temple. And this is precisely what happened. The Lord leaves the temple, the place where his presence dwelled upon earth, though a house could not contain him. And figuratively, it's the place from which he ruled, reflecting the heavenly temple from which he does rule. He left it, and when he did so, he left it open and vulnerable, giving it over to destruction. And he allowed the temple and the land to be plundered. Now, Malachi, as a post-exilic prophet who is prophesying and, and doing his priestly work after the exile has come to an well, the geographical exile had come to an end, he is saying, listen, you fellow priests, it may appear that we are laboring in vain and that the Lord has not returned to his temple. And you are right. That is the case. But he says, behold, I am sending my messenger before your face to prepare the way for the Lord's return to his temple. I'm paraphrasing, but this is what he's getting at. He is saying as a priest ministering in the temple who is waiting on the Lord to return to his temple because they're doing their routines and the Lord is not present says, I will send my messenger before your face to prepare the way for the Lord to return to his temple. Keep your heads up. For the Lord whom you are seeking, he says, will suddenly return to his temple and the messenger of the covenant. There is an expectation extending back at least to the exile that the Lord would return to the land 
and the temple and put an end to Israel's long exile. Exile not specifically from the land, although that was a key symbol of it, but an exile from his presence, from his presence dwelling in Jerusalem. We saw within the book of Mark how Mark himself develops this theme of the Lord's return to his temple. So too, here in John, and this is, this is the point that I'm making about John. John, the author, is tapping into the same expectation of the return of the Lord to his temple. And the announcement by the forerunner, John the Baptist, that the Lord is indeed returning in the person of Jesus. So when, when John, John is saying is that as you see Jesus going about in the land and claiming for himself, himself all of these prerogatives of the temple, like cleansing leper, where do you go to get cleansed if you're in first century Israel? Go to the temple. Well, in this case, the temple is coming to them. So everywhere Jesus goes, this temple is, is kind of doing its work. He is this temple, and he is going out into the world rather than everyone coming to him. It's part of what makes the, the leaders angry. He's, he's saying, I can do things that the temple exclusively could do. I think this, this is hugely important. This is also has practical implications as well. We as temples are to do that as well, right? We're to go about, we're to do it. Not on the scale of Jesus, but but in Him, right? So we are to we are to do things that the temple was doing, forgiving, cleansing, healing, you know, to the to the degree that we can. So it's very important. Uh, so so here too in John, John the Baptist, now John the author is tapping into the same expectation of the return to the temple, and the announcement by the forerunner, John the Baptist, that the Lord is indeed returning in the person of Jesus. Now. It, so it's not obvious, though, when you're reading this passage that he's doing that because he doesn't, like Mark, he doesn't, he doesn't quote from the scripture and say, look, this is this happened with, uh, to so that the scripture can be fulfilled. He just he he weaves it into the story and expects us to to get it. And when he does, so so as he returns, so as Jesus is coming into the world, so the announcement is that he is coming into the world. And he is going to be this, this temple. We're going to see the language uh, drawn out here in just a moment. But as he is doing so, he brings Israel, those who embrace Jesus, out of their long extended exile. This is also another important point as we continue to work through the book of John, that Jesus, in his own words, he, he suggests, um, sometimes it's quite explicit, but, but often it's veiled. He suggests that if you, if Israel, who are the, the Jews who are listening to him, that if they don't, if they don't listen to him, that they're not going to go into the land, right? So they're, they're not going to participate in, in this return from exile that he is bringing about. He spiritualized in a sense, the exile, uh, but it takes on practical implications when they reject him. They are actually choosing to remain in Israel's long awaited exile and they will experience John will experience the destruction. The rest of the rest of the authors, uh, the gospel authors, get at this as well. Within a generation, Jerusalem is going to be ransacked and, and destroyed, and that's it. That's it for the temple. Why? Because God is building His own temple, right? He's building His temple through Jesus the Messiah. John doesn't quote scripture, though. He uses words that, when seen in context and against the context of creation and covenant 
indicate that God has all along been planning a great rescue event in which he himself will come to dwell with mankind. And he is now beginning that operation in Jesus. That's, that's what he's getting at. The words he uses in our present text are found in verses 14 and 18 in particular. These words are dwelt, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and the word glory, which we'll see is, is repeated there as well. So in verse 14, the logos, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory like a unique son from the father, full of grace and truth. Now, on the surface, this appears to be simply describing the way that God's word became human in the person of Jesus. And it is that at least, but it is much more than that. What John is saying about Jesus is that he, the word of God, became flesh and pitched his tent. He tabernacled among us. The word that's often translated as dwelt in the, is the word that means to pitch a tent, to set up a tabernacle. It is said of Lot in Genesis 13, 12, that he pitched his tent. It's the same verb that's used to describe that. But more importantly, the noun from this, this root is used out of the temporary dwelling of God among Israel that we know of as the tabernacle, which Moses and Israel were commanded to make. This word is used hundreds of times to describe this tabernacle that God pitched in the wilderness after Mount Sinai. Exodus 25, 9, which begins the, the section on the instructions for building the tabernacle, says, And you shall make for me according to all that I show you on the mountain, the pattern of the tent and the pattern of all its furnishings. So you shall make it. You will note that this tent was to be according to the pattern of what Moses was shown on the mountain. In other words, there's a temple in heaven the pattern of which was to be repeated in the midst of the people so that God would and could come to dwell in their midst. This, according to John, is a foretaste, a shadow of what God would later do in Christ, a project to point to a future reality wherein the temple in heaven becomes one with the tabernacle on earth. Or to put it another way, a future reality is being created in Israel's tabernacle, wherein heaven and earth are merging, much like Eden, only more so. John is not simply saying that Jesus is building his tent in human flesh, though he is doing that. Something more is going on, though, though God putting on uh, flesh is astounding in itself. Nor is it only that Jesus represents God's returning to his temple and the end of the exile for those who embrace him. Though that is also true, it should be pondered as we read the rest of John. We must tie this into the message of the previous introductory words about Jesus and creation. What is happening here is that the, the enfleshing, the incarnation of God himself in Jesus is the beginning of new creation. In the pattern of a temple, whereby God begins his final temple building project though movable because it is not made with hands. It's movable among his people. He has desired from the beginning to dwell with his people, and that is now beginning. And here we see in Jesus the merger of heaven and earth, the end to which the temple and the tabernacle of Israel pointed. And this is nothing less than new creation. 
I think it's important. I wasn't going to I wasn't going to go into this, but it, it feels like I it feels like I should at this point. If you look at at the building of creation, if you look at the creation account, it's done in seven days. It's patterns of seven. In Exodus twenty five through thirty one, you will see that actually the building of the tabernacle does exactly the same thing. There are these seven commandments that spoken by Moses and spoken to the Lord uh, to Moses about building the tabernacle. So to say, and it's done also in First uh, Kings chapter eleven, not First Kings seven, when Solomon is building the temple as well. There's a series of sevens. So to say. When you're building the tabernacle, this is an act of new creation. When you're building the temple, Jerusalem, Solomon, this is an act of new creation. It's to be done in seven days. And then what's going to happen in seven days at the end of the seven days or seven years? What's going to happen at the end of seven years when you build this tabernacle? The Lord is going to come there and he's going to rest. That's what you do in a temple. That's what a God does in a temple. And this is what happens in all three instances in creation, seven days, resting on the seventh day, seven days of building the tabernacle, the spirit of God comes and sets up seven years of building, uh, comes and sets up uh, his, his presence. This happens with the temple as well. So these series of sevens indicate that the temple project was actually a creation project. And that's an important thing to note, especially as we're reading John. I think, I think he's assuming that most of his readers, at least some of them, are are seeing this pattern within the scripture. Okay. So this is uh, this is not surprising uh, if we remember uh, the way that God created the world, specifically as a temple. And then he, what does he do uh, on the sixth day? He brings his image there, right? And he puts his image. There in the middle of creation that he's that he's created. What does he do? And who is the image in Genesis 1? Adam, mankind, right? Well, what does he do here in this new creation? He brings his son and he puts him there in the new creation. All of this, this typology, I think, is, is relevant here. Uh, it's following essentially the pattern of, of creation. Here we see in Jesus the merger of heaven and earth the end to which the temple and tabernacle of Israel pointed. What Jesus is doing anticipates the grand finale of the resurrection, wherein this merger will happen in its fullness, when the whole earth will be renewed at the unveiling of the children of God, Romans 8, or in the new Jerusalem, when it comes down out of heaven, Revelation 21 and 22. What do we see there? We see in both cases, we see the merger of heaven and earth. And this has begun in the Messiah. He's reconciling all things to himself. This is heaven and earth. This is what Paul says. I quoted from it last week. All things in heaven and earth, for the principalities and powers that were created for and by and for the Messiah, because he's going to reconcile them all to himself, bringing them all into subjection. This is not surprising if we remember Eden and the way the voice of God walked about in the garden. In other words, you had a partial unity there where heaven and earth were joined as one. And the voice, the very voice of God is, is walking, strolling around in the garden with mankind. The new reality of Emmanuel, God with us, is coming to pass and will encompass the whole earth in the future. The other word, uh, besides the word for dwelt or tabernacle, is also found in verse 14. 
The word is glory. To understand what John is saying about this word and what it implies, we should look at what happens when God himself enters the tabernacle that Moses and Israel were commanded to build. Exodus 40, verse 34 and 35. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So keep that in mind. I mean, this, these are, if you know this, if you know this pattern, you'll immediately recognize this is what, what John is saying about Jesus. Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. In two verses, he repeats that phrase. Jesus tabernacling among us is like God coming to dwell in his tent, only the tent now is human flesh. Like the merger of heaven and earth in the tent in the midst of Israel. The merger of heaven and earth is now happening in the body of Jesus. And this is why in John's gospel, you'll see, like we, and we look at the uh, John 6, uh, and the, the way that he says, eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, he's, he's speaking in these terms where, whereby he has, where he's indicating that heaven and earth is basically merged in him. I will see this at the end of chapter one. Look at um, look at the end of chapter one. It's going to say, "You will see the heavens open, and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man." Is that describing? If you trace that back and look at at um, Exodus twenty eight, this is where Jacob is there at Bethel at the house of God, seeing the heavens open and the angels of God. Heaven and earth are joined as one there, and Jesus says. You're going to see greater things than these. You're going to see the heavens open. In other words, this is the temple, and I am it, right? I'm the, the body. Uh, the body of Jesus is the temple. Now, uh, the merger of heaven and earth is now happening in the body of Jesus, and God is returning to his temple and ending the exile. It is all of those things. And it has glory. Jesus has glory. Glory like a unique son of the Father. This son is coming into the world to rule as king, as Adam was commanded to do in the beginning. He's the unique son, the royal, the firstborn son, who is also the very place where heaven and earth meet as one. He is the temple, like Adam put in the garden to rule. And when he comes into the world, God is building a parallel and new creation out of Jesus and those who embrace him. And actually, according to Isaiah 66, this is part of the promise of new creation. God taking up his dwelling among the humble and contrite, among those who tremble at his word. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. Where then is a house, this word house is temple, where then is a house that you could build for me? And where is the place that I may rest? See there? So the temple is built. God takes his rest there. That's where he, he rests. It's also where he rules, safe from all his enemies, and he rules over them from there. From my hand made all these things. Thus all these things come into being, declares the Lord. But to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. That's 66, 1 and 2. The end of that chapter verse 22 and 23, for just as the new heavens and the new earth, which I will, which I will make, which I make, will endure before me, declares the Lord. So your seed and your name will endure, and it shall be from new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath, all mankind will come and bow down before me. This is the promise 
of new creation when all creation comes to worship him. Let me summarize and then move on to John the Baptist's words about Jesus, and then how 18, verse 18, also ties back into this theme. In John's gospel, Jesus' entry into the world is described as a tabernacling among us. This event is fulfillment of several ideas and promises within scripture and Israel's history. This tabernacling event of Jesus is signaling that God is returning to his temple, but it is more than that. He is building his new temple out of the body of Jesus. The temple of God is among men, and this tabernacling is essentially the merger of heaven and earth as one in Jesus himself, the new temple. We then, by extension and incorporation into Jesus, can also be described as temples of God or temples of the Holy Spirit, wherein God himself, through the Spirit, takes up residence within us individually and in a special way as we meet together in his name. Remember, where two or more are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them. We reflect that temple reality of oneness around the one God to the extent that our unity around Jesus by the Spirit is unbroken. Now, the testimony of John. John testified about him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received in grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The unique God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. But John, the author, is said, has said of Jesus, the word, John himself also testifies to. Jesus came before me, he says. He existed before me. That is, he is the word about whom John has already been speaking. As the forerunner spoken of in Isaiah 40, 23, and Malachi 3, 1, he is preparatory, and he knows it. He's a pointer, a witness to the glory to be revealed in Jesus. We get only this one line here about John's, John the Baptist's testimony, but he will come back and he will say more later. John the author seems to complete John the Baptist's thought in verse 16. In verse 16, he says, for of his fullness, we have all received in grace upon grace. This seems to clearly be John the writer, not John the Baptist. And sometimes you have to, it's hard, it's difficult. And you see this in chapter three as well. It's hard to tell when there's a quote, where it ends and where John begins. The narrator reads along. He, he's, he doesn't make a clear break between Jesus's words and his own words. And here he doesn't make a clean break between John the Baptist's words and his own words. It says, because out of his fullness, we all receive. Note, it's not just John the Baptist, but we all. That's how it's the only way we can tell who's speaking here. And grace upon grace, he says. And John the author continues. What John the author received, who, unlike John the Baptist, lived through Jesus's ministry, was grace upon grace, gift upon gift, having been with Jesus throughout his ministry and witnessed his resurrection a gift or grace, which he views as the culmination of scripture or Torah. Because the law, and this is, this I think is the reason that he, that he goes to this. He, it's not that this has nothing, it's not that the law has nothing to do with this. It's that he needs to discuss the law in order to get at a larger point. Because the law, he says, was given through Moses, 
grace and truth came, there's our word again, it came through Jesus, the Messiah. What is he getting at? Is he saying something negative about the law that was given through Moses, or is he doing something else? There's a little bit of contrast here, but the contrast is not in order to say these are opposites. We're tempted to read it that way. We're tempted to put in the word but. Because the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus inside. But it does not say that. There's no but in there. Just law through Moses, grace and truth through Jesus the Messiah. He seems to be describing the goal or the fulfillment of Israel's history that culminates in grace and truth revealed in Jesus, the Messiah. In other words, the covenant at Sinai yields to the new covenant in the Messiah. In other words, he is saying that it is a reality that the law was given through Moses, but that there was to be something beyond that. Something that is greater, full of grace and truth, and that is Jesus the Messiah. And it has a glory, he has a glory all his own. It's a glory only glimpsed briefly by a few in Israel's sordid scriptural history, one of whom was Moses himself, the one through whom the law was given. But remember that in that account of God showing his glory to Moses, only Moses himself was able to see the glory. The people themselves couldn't even look at Moses's face because of the brightness of God's glory reflected on Moses's face. But for John, and I think this is the point of verses 16 and 17, we all received out of his fullness. That's the point. So there's a contrast here. And the reason he brings in the law and Moses is because under the Torah, the people stood condemned and they could not look upon the glory. But for John, we all receive out of his fullness. Not just Moses under the old Sinai covenant. We all beheld his glory, verse 14, the glory of a unique son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Thus, Jesus is the culmination for the goal of God coming to dwell among his people, full of glory. And now that he has, we, like John the author, can also behold his glory and receive grace upon grace. <clears throat> Let me illustrate with what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 about Moses and glory. He says in chapter 3, verse 7, 2 Corinthians 3, 7 and following. But if the ministry of death in letters engraved on stones, you heard that before? What is the ministry of death? It's the law. It's the giving of the law. Moses was given a ministry to kill the people. On that one. If that one came with glory, so that the sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses because of the glory of his face, which was fading, how will the ministry of the Spirit fail to be even more with glory, even more glorious? For if the ministry of condemnation has glory, much more does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory. For indeed, what had glory in this case has virtually no glory because of the glory that surpasses it. For if that which fades away was with glory, much more that which remains is in glory. Therefore, having such a hope, we use great boldness in our speech and are not like Moses, who used to put a veil over his face so that the sons of Israel would not look intently at the end of what was fading away. 
You hear it? So Moses was beholding the glory of the Lord. It was, it was on his face, but Israel could not look at it. They could not share in that glory. But we all now behold the glory in the face of Christ. This is monumental. And to me, this is just, it gives me chills to think about the, what's happened in, 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 the, in the Messiah. We all now behold the glory. Israel could not look upon the face of Moses. But we all now in the Messiah. Behold, but their minds were hardened, he says in verse 14. For until this very day at the reading of the old covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because it is removed in Christ. But to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is lifted. Now, what does that imply? If the veil is lifted, what do they see? They see the glory. Right? They get to see the glory, but they can't look at it while they're veiled. Well, well, the messenger is veiled. Now the Lord is the spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, this is, the, this is the climax of it, we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory into glory, just as from the Lord. <laughs> that's, that's beautiful. That's huge. What is this all about? So, if you look at Exodus 33, uh, there Moses had prayed that God would show him his, his glory, right? And he, he asked the Lord, he said, show me your glory. And he does show him the glory as he is giving him the law. And he's, he's writing with the, the spirit of God upon the tablets. And when Moses comes down from the mountain with the words, and remember, we're talking here in John 1 about the word becoming flesh, not on tablets, right? That's also important. Not on tablets. The word, he comes down from the mountain with the words of the covenant, the 10 words. Uh, the people are unable to look at Moses' face when he is speaking to them because they can't handle the glory. So he veils his face so he can give them the commandments that will ultimately kill them. They will all die in the wilderness because of unbelief. Now, though this ministry leads to the death of Israel, the words proved to be their undoing. That ministry did have glory, a glory that only Moses was able to bear. But now in Jesus, the glory of God is revealed, unveiled in the face of Christ, and we all can receive of his fullness, unlike Israel under the Torah. We all are like Moses, receiving the very word of God with unveiled faces. And through the spirit are able to see it and to bear it. Though no one has seen God, as it says in verse 18, the unique son has made him known. Jesus is mediating God himself. His glory that Moses alone looked upon. That's what he is. Who did Moses see? I think we can assume it was Jesus himself. He saw the son. He saw the glory of God. Because the glory of God is in the face of Christ. Jesus is full of grace and truth, full of temple glory. And as we receive him and share him, we see just how glorious he is. And we too share in his glory, associated only with the unique Son of God from the Father. We all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord. Who is the spirit?